An NRA board member's letter pushes the group's internal struggle back out into the open. Plus, author Mark W. Smith on the game the Fourth Circuit is playing in the Maryland Assault Weapons Ban case. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also a CNN contributor and the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free newsletter today if you want to keep up to date with what's going on with guns in America. This week, we're actually doing a a number of different legal-related topics, so I wanted to bring on somebody who has a great deal of expertise in this area, uh, pro-gun scholar, member of the Supreme Court Bar, and host of the Four Boxes Diner Mark W. Smith is joining us today. Uh, welcome back to the show, Mark. It's always a pleasure to have you on. Stephen, it's always a great honor. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, and uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have you in particular on is that uh, for the first topic we're going to discuss, you were dead on the money here. This is the Fourth Amendment, or sorry, Fourth Amendment, Fourth Circuit case on uh, the assault weapons ban in, in Maryland that has now, there's been some interesting legal maneuvering that you kind of predicted might happen. Can you just walk people through exactly what's going on there? Yes. What the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit out of Maryland and Virginia did in the Bianchi case, which addresses whether or not Maryland's quote unquote assault weapon ban is constitutional under the Second Amendment is, let me use a very academic word here, pathetic. It's pathetic that what you had here, just to jog everyone's memory, is that Maryland enacted a semi-automatic rifle ban in all intents and purposes. Uh, The Fourth Circuit heard in three-judge panel, I should say, a three-judge panel on the Fourth Circuit heard the argument, I believe, at the end of November, early December of 2022, right? And that was after the Supreme Court. It was after the Supreme Court decision in Bruin. Mm -hmm. The truth is Bruin does not really impact uh, assault. Well, Bruin does not really impact the relevant law for arms ban cases. The relevant Supreme Court precedent when you're dealing with an arms ban case, whether it be a magazine uh, ban, whether it be a uh, AR-15 ban, is really the Heller decision. But what Bruin did is they remanded a bunch of cases that were up on cert back to the lower courts to say, just, you know, do it again, take a look at Bruin, see what you think, and then send it back up to us because we have other work we have to get to with the rest of the Constitution, the rest of the federal statutory world. So it goes back down to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. There is a three-judge panel that hears argument, again, like I said, around December 1st or so of 2022. Hear what I just said, Stephen? 2022. That three-judge panel then, um, from I listened to the argument, it was pretty clear it was going to be two to one in favor of the Second Amendment. There was one judge that really hated all guns at all times, you could tell. And then the other two were pretty clear. They understood that Heller was the relevant law and we're going to apply it faithfully. And the Second Amendment was going to prevail in the Maryland assault weapon ban. And I use assault weapon as a political propaganda term, of course, uh, but that's what the bill is called. So that's why I'm referencing it. But really, this is an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle ban in Maryland. So, of course, what happens is it looks for all intents and purposes, that the panel is going to rule in favor of the Second Amendment plaintiffs. Now, here's the kicker. So this goes on. We're waiting, waiting, waiting for over one year. Hear what I just said? One year we're waiting for a decision from the panel on what should be a really relatively straightforward case. You apply to Heller. You write up, this is what Heller says. Bruin doesn't affect it. Because keep in mind that Bruin cites positively 
positively the Heller case something like 80 times, 80 times. So then what happens is all of a sudden we have this massive delay. At the same time, we start to get Second Amendment decisions out of the Fourth Circuit, like the Maryland Shall Issue case that were argued after Bianchi, yet were decided before Bianchi in situations were much more novel and complex dealing with the new Bruin standards. So it becomes very odd as to how is it that a simple case that just requires Heller to be applied to a ban on a weapon that's commonly owned, why has that been argued first and still not decided when all these other Second Amendment cases are being decided by the Fourth Circuit? Some of those cases, mind you, had judges that were on that panel that heard the Bianchi case. So there was pretty clear something, some sort of games were taking place in the Fourth Circuit, which is notorious for being a hyper-partisan, liberal activist court against all conservative issues, including but not limited to the Second Amendment. So that got me thinking of what I predicted uh, at, at the one year mark is I said, you know, there is a game being played here. And this is a court that has played games before on what I would say politically charged topics. Specifically, uh, several years ago, there was a voting rights case that was argued in front of a panel. And it looked very favorable for, I guess, really kind of the conservative viewpoint, if you will. And uh, lo and behold, what the Fourth Circuit did internally, and this is going to make your eyes glaze over a little bit, but it's important to understand this, that what the Fourth Circuit did internally was rather than let the panel decision come out and then have a request for en banc review, which means that all the judges will hear the case, not just the three-judge panel, what the Fourth Circuit did in that case of Weiss involving the Voting Rights Act is the entire court decide to take the case away from the panel because they don't want a favorable uh, conservative decision. They took that case away from the panel and they unbonked it without anybody even knowing they did it. And then they issued an unbonk ruling in favor of really the Democratic Party, if you will. And uh, the dissent said, this is absurd. The way this works is the panel, three-judge panel, issues a ruling, then there's a request for unbonk, and then they decide whether or not the court should hear it on bond. You never take it away from the panel. So that is my prediction. I predicted that, that that game they played in the voting rights context was exactly what I thought they were going to be doing in the Second Amendment context with this Bianchi case, because it looked like we were going to get a very powerful decision in favor of the Second Amendment in Bianchi. And lo and behold, just a few weeks ago, we find out that indeed, and unfortunately for Second Amendment rights and Maryland gun owners, that the Fourth Circuit has decided after a year of waiting to internally on bonk this case. And now they've scheduled this case on bonk to be heard again with oral arguments at the end of March. There is no excuse for this behavior. Let me be clear. There is no excuse for this behavior for any judge, because if the Fourth Circuit knew they wanted to on bonk this case because they thought it was so important or whatever the reason is, there was no reason whatsoever that they needed to wait over one year before they decide then to unbonk the case. This is purely, and in my opinion, this is clearly about delaying the inevitable, which is the U.S. Supreme Court, when they get to an AR-15 ban case, is going to knock them out of the park, is being clearly unconstitutional under Heller. So the only chance, as I see it, that the anti-gunners and the anti-gun judges in this country have to, per to allow for these bans to continue in these terrible anti-gun blue states is to prevent a case like this from getting to the Supreme Court. So they are doing everything they can to delay, 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 to prevent 
prevent this court from hearing it, all in the hope, and this is sound gruesome, but it's true, all in the hope that one of the conservative justices, such as Cl just Clarence Thomas or Justice uh, Samuel Alito, one of them leaves the court so they can replace him with another Brown Jackson. That is the entire strategy of the anti-gun movement in this country when it comes to arms ban cases such as magazines and AR-15 bans. Okay, so so you're saying that this this maneuver, one, uh, it's not a common thing to happen. I, I've never no. seen this happen. Extraordinarily rare. Extraordinarily rare. This only occurs, usually you will only see something like this, and even then you won't see it, is it's, if you're dealing with like a presidential election and you're like one month before an election and they have to get a result immediately and there's no time for appeals because you have to set the rules before an election or something extreme like that. It basically, for all intents and purposes, it never happens. You don't need to learn about it in law school because it literally never occurs. And yet, coincidentally, it occurs. And why did the Fourth Circuit wait over a year to do this? If they wanted to unbunk this case internally, they could have done it you know, a year earlier, but they didn't. Why? Because we know why. They want to slow walk these cases to make sure this Supreme Court never gets an AR-15 ban in front of it. Okay. So it's an uncommon tactic. And it usually, when it has happened, it's more to speed up a case. But in this, in this right. circumstances, you're saying it's to slow down the case as much as possible to avoid uh, you know, an appeal to the Supreme Court. Uh, That's correct. This is all about delay, delay, delay. There is no other excuse for this. And keep in mind that the Fourth Circuit is not like the First Circuit, uh, which is like over, like, for example, in the First Circuit out of Boston, Stephen, there is, as best, as best as I can tell, there's really no three-judge panel that you can get in the First Circuit Court of Appeals out of Boston, New Hampshire, uh, that part of the country, that could possibly give rise to a Second Amendment ruling that's favorable to gun owners as a general matter. But that's not the case with the Fourth Circuit. The Fourth Circuit is really split seven to six. Um, so it's really evenly divided. But what you have in the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals out of Virginia and Maryland is a hyper-partisan, aggressive, liberal-bent court that even though it's a narrowly divided court, the majority is hyper-aggressive, and they act that way on these politically charged cases, such as the Second Amendment. And it's, to me, a blatant power grab. And it will not be lost on the U.S. Supreme Court when the time comes, these games that were seen by the Courts of Appeals. This will be brought to the fore at some point, and the Supreme Court's not going to like it. And you see this as part of a broader tactic to try and delay gun cases generally, uh, especially in these more liberal circuits. I guess the, the Ninth Circuit might be another sort of parallel here where it's a relatively divided court, but le leans heavily to the left in the same way. And they also take up a lot of these on bunk, uh, these cases on on bunk as well. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I think, of course, there's two related things going on. One is there are still judges out there. Keep in mind, judges are government employees. We must never lose sight that judges, uh, really are employed by the government. And, you know, there's a, and, 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 Republican judges, if you want to call them that, Republican-nominated judges, they really fall into kind of two categories. And it's important that the gun movement understand this. The first category, which is a much greater category, thanks to President Trump and Mitch McConnell and sort of the work they did uh, with appointing judges uh, during the Trump years, are originalists. They are trying to interpret the Constitution as it was written in, you know, in the 18th century, no different than any other social or other contract. What did the people mean when they wrote down these words? What, were, what was the intent when they adopted this document, the Constitution? But then you have another strain, which is becoming more um, 
I would say more of the vintage type judges, older judges like Harvey Wilkinson on the Fourth Circuit, who's a Republican appointee and many people consider conservative, but on issues like guns, he's absolutely horrific. So the point is these Republican appointed judges that are a little bit more of an older vintage in many instances, come across or are law and order conservatives. Now, the problem with law and order conservatives for the Second Amendment is they tend to presume that the police and the government are always right. And whatever's best for the police, the law enforcement community and the government is good because they consider that to be being a good law and order person. But the reality is that they will sacrifice the right of the people to keep and bear arms in the name that it makes the job of the government, i.e. police, harder. But of course, the entire purpose, Stephen, of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights is indeed to make the job harder for the government to take away our freedoms. That is, the, not, that is a feature and not a bug. So one of the issues you have on some of these courts is even when you have Republican appointed judges, you sometimes have those who are of a law and order variety, and they can be problematic on Second Amendment issues because they view being good on you and I having a gun as somehow being bad on cops having guns or you know cops dealing with criminals. Because usually when these um, usually when guns pop up in a court, and this is the reality, you and I are not the party in a case involving guns in most courts in most of America on most days. The reality is if you're a judge dealing with a gun that's appearing in court, inevitably, 99% of the time, it's relating to a gun-related violent crime, and you're putting somebody in prison. So when a judge sees Gun issues pop up in front of them. It's usually not the Firearms Policy Coalition, the NRA, or the Second Amendment Foundation litigating. It's usually, again, a gangbanger or some other, you know, psychopath or thug with guns doing bad things. So they kind of have this bias in favor of law enforcement against gun toters because that's what they see in their courts. And I do think that ultimately causes a prejudice against the Second Amendment. We're much better off today than we used to be, uh, but that is something we in the Second Amendment community must be aware of that dynamic. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's uh, certainly a dynamic that does exist in the courts. Um, but I, I want to get at this idea that I've I've heard, especially from people in California, right, uh, who do deal with the, the Ninth Circuit a lot, that they can get wins at the lower circuit or at the lower court levels, even the appeals court level, but that the court in the Ninth Circuit is, exclusively takes those cases when they do win to an en banc uh, hearing and then the gun rights advocates lose. And that, that sounds very similar to what you're describing here with the Fourth Circuit situation. And it's kind of uh, perhaps part of a, uh, the larger uh, strategy that you've laid out about delaying these cases in the post Bruin world where the Supreme Court has a, still has a 6 3 majority of uh, so the same basic majority that was on the court when Bruin was handed down. So um, is that is that what you mean? Like you see that uh, not just yes. in the Fourth Circuit, but also the Ninth Circuit and maybe the First Circuit, Second Circuit, some of these other left leaning circuits. Yeah, I think when it comes to the First Circuit out of Boston, there will never be a panel decision favorable to the Second Amendment. So they don't have to worry about en banc so much in the First Circuit because I don't think there will be a panel decision in favor of the Second Amendment. That's my this. Then you go out to the Ninth Circuit. So the way the Ninth Circuit has historically played it is they will let a panel of three judges decide a case. Sometimes they decide it favorably to the Second Amendment. And then, of course, the Ninth Circuit comes in as a whole and then will en banc that case and will then overturn it. 
By the way, it's a little trickier in the Ninth Circuit today because after the four years of President Trump, that court is much more 50-50 between Republican appointees and Democratic appointees. So it's like back in the old days, it was a slam dunk uh, for non-bank Ninth Circuit. You know, if it was if the Ninth Circuit took a case on bank, the Second Amendment was going to lose. It's a little bit trickier nowadays because the number of judges is more evenly split than it was you know, five or six years ago. So it's more of a coin flip in the Ninth Circuit. With that said, there's no doubt that the many judges on the Ninth Circuit want to do everything they can to prevent a Second Amendment ruling from taking hold. What's more offensive right now is what happened in the Fourth Circuit, which is it's pretty clear what happened in the Fourth Circuit was there was going to be a very powerful and favorable ruling that was going to go out onto the books and into the public space uh, in favor of the Second Amendment by a three-judge panel of the Fourth Circuit. That was inevitable. That appeared to be inevitable after the oral argument over well over a year ago. So what's offensive there is rather than let the panel decision come out, articulating their views as to why the Second Amendment protects AR-15s and semi-automatic rifles, instead, at the la- as my guess is, I don't have inside information, but just looking at the dynamic of the timing here, at the last possible minute after these judges probably spent all their time writing up this opinion, it took them a year to do it or whatever it was, at the last possible moment before that decision could hit the news, could hit the docket, could be talked about by you and I on YouTube and so on, guess what happens? At the last possible minute, the on bon- the Fourth Circuit on bonks it and prevents that decision from seeing the light of day. And then they delay it. And they're going to delay this, I'm sure, over a year, the way this game gets played. And that's just pathetic. So it's even worse what the Fourth Circuit did in the Bianchi case than what the Ninth Circuit does. Because at least in the Ninth Circuit, you have the benefit of the three-judge panel explaining why. And you have the benefit of like Judge Benitez laying out their views about why the Second Amendment protects these weapons. And you can then, in the court of public opinion, look at one opinion and compare it. At least you have that benefit. You have complete information. In the Fourth Circuit, they essentially have buried the panel decision on purpose, as I see it. And it's absolutely pathetic, and it's not judicial. And uh, I'm not saying it's unethical, but it's dirty pool. Mm. And and it is uh, something that, you know, what it, from my from my point of view, observing these sorts of legal rulings over the years as a reporter, uh, generally the higher courts try to be respectful to the procedures of of lower courts, right? And so that that, seems odd for that reason as well, right? Look, anyone who litigates or is familiar with dealing with courts and judges, I'm quite familiar with all of that, obviously, given my long career and all in and around all the courts in America. There's two things. There are two values that go on with the court system. One is you want to make sure that the process and the system is fair. It's just fair. Okay. And there's a second value, which is you want to make sure that the process appears, appears to be fair because the public has to have trust in the outcomes of court cases even if they lose. So you want to at least say, okay, well, I lost the case, but at least I feel that I was treated fairly. It was a fair process. And I think that when these games get played by the Ninth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit, you start to get people that otherwise support the Constitution and support the courts and support civility and civilization, the Western civilization and all these values, you start to get people questioning, well, it does not appear to be very fair given these shenanigans. And I think, again, there are two values. It's not just the actual fairness of a process. It's the appearance. And I think both the Fourth Circuit and in many instances, the Ninth Circuit, the processes that are getting engaged in. And again, it almost always seems to be the case that the one issue that gets thrown under the bus is the 
the right of the people to keep and bear arms. You don't see these games in any other context with any other constitutional right, even if there's vigorous disagreement about like the Fourth Amendment's unreasonable searches and seizures and whether or not that should let a guilty guy go free. A lot of other controversial parts, the, the Eighth Amendment death penalty, uh, a lot of other controversial parts with public policy implications of the Bill of Rights. And yet the only one that seems to be thrown under the bus and these procedural games get played with is the right of the people to keep and bear arms. Uh, and, and in that vein, one of the things that I wanted to discuss, you had a good video on this as well. And we've talked about it a little bit at the reload too. Uh, you know, the, these sorts of laws that are being challenged in this case, right? The, the AR-15 bans. Uh, one of the issues that a lot of people will discuss with the court system and uh, challenging these particular kinds of laws is in how the, I think a lot of people view the Supreme Court as uh, perhaps being favorable to striking down uh, an AR-15 ban on, based off of the common use standard laid out in Heller, like you alluded to earlier. Um, and uh, the, but the issue seems to be in getting a case there. And a lot of people are skeptical that, uh, that you could actually get one up there. And I guess this kind of also goes to the fairness of the process uh, argument that you, you just spoke to. Um, because these laws are only passed in more liberal states, right? You're not going to have Texas pass a law like an, an AR-15 ban. And so the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals is never going to handle a case like this. It's always going to be the Ninth Circuit, the Fourth Circuit, the Second Circuit, the First Circuit. And, um, you know, they tend to be more liberal courts because the judges are drawn from those states and how the system works. And the Supreme Court primarily functions to settle circuit disputes. So they're going to take cases much more often, at least, where there's a disagreement between those lower court circuits uh, on whether or not a law is constitutional. And the issue then is, well, if, if the Ninth Circuit and the Fourth Circuit uphold assault weapons bans, there's no disagreement. And so it's harder for the court to step in. What's your view of, of that whole situation? Do you think that uh, makes it unlikely for the court to take up this case, even if you know, whatever the Fourth Circuit ends up actually doing with it when they do hand out a ruling? Well, right. There's really three general ways the Supreme Court will grant cert or what they look for before they agree to hear a case, which for all intents and purposes, they have complete discretion with very few examples that are otherwise. So they have complete discretion as to what cases they take under their cert authority. They usually look at one of three things. The first is, and this is the most common, is there is a circuit split, meaning that the First Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston says that a law means X, and then the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in California says the law means not X. So now you have two different parts of the country operating under the same law, but it's being interpreted uh, 180 degrees differently. And because of that, for uniformity and to make sure that Americans are all functioning under the same uniform national laws, the Supreme Court will often take the, that kind of a case to resolve circuit splits. Sometimes it's called reserving a split or, or you know, fixing a, a split of authority. That is very common. And you raise a good question, which is what happens where AR bans and semi-automatic rifle bans all arise in the same handful of uh, nutty anti-gun states? 
They are being litigated in front of, you know, the judges that have mostly been appointed and are blessed by the nutty anti-gun politicians in those same states. How does that play out? Because you're never going to have a Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals decision down in Texas knocking out an AR-15 ban because there's never going to be an AR-15 ban enacted in Texas or Louisiana for them to rule on. So, yes, when it comes to a circus, but I think right now it's unlikely, and this is good news for the Second Amendment community, there is unlikely to be a circuit because the vast majority of America is still favorable to the Constitution and the Second Amendment. That's why we see this explosion in permitless carry regimes and people recognizing that you are your own first responder. And yesterday's decision or report by the Department of Justice about how terrible uh, those 400 police officers in the Uvalde situation, how they really did not get the job done for a whole host of reasons, according to that report, uh, only reminds people that at the end of the day, we are our own, we are our own first responders and we can't trust 911 or the police necessarily to protect our lives. So I think the gun rights movement continues to be strong, except in these certain states uh, that are bad on guns that are basically controlled entirely by the Democratic Party. So the question is, how does the U.S. Supreme Court hear a case dealing with a semi-automatic ban where you're never going to have a circuit split? Well, that gives rise to the two other ways that the court will often consider a case. One is it has some sort of national significance. Bush versus Gore in 2000 would be an example of this. There's no circuit split of how you count chads, falling chads in Florida or anything like that. But it was obviously an important political decision for national significance as to who was the president in 2000, uh, down in 2000 with Florida. And then, of course, you have things that set what are known as set important precedential values. And I think that's where this would fall. The good news is, as I talked about in my video, Stephen, is there's at least two Second Amendment cases of the four modern cases. The four modern Second Amendment cases, as you know, is the 2008 decision in Heller, the 2010 decision in McDonald, uh, right? The 2016 decision in Caetano versus Massachusetts. And of course, the 2022 decision in Nicerpa versus Bruin. But if you look at those four, of the four, two of them, there was no circuit split. There was no circuit split about you know, whether or not stun guns are protected arms under the Second Amendment, which is what the Caetano case presented. And yet the case took that case, uh, the Supreme Court took that case and reversed the Massachusetts ruling and effectively said that stun guns are protected arms. And that was essentially the holding and sent it back and Miss Caetano got off on that grounds. Then, of course, you look at the 2000, um, 2010 decision of McDonald versus Chicago, another example where that was no circuit split, and yet they took the case. So half of the modern cases involving the Second Amendment arose in the context of no circuit split. So that should give people optimistic reasons for why the Supreme Court will take Second Amendment cases, even if there's no circuit split, especially that something so significant um, as an AR-15 ban, because it's simply outrageous that in the vast majority of America, you can have any of these firearms uh, and readily and no big deal. And then in these in these handful of states, these malum prohibitum crimes, which means no evil intent. There's nothing inherently evil about any of this, what you have in the back of your closet. And now you get to go to prison for 10 years. Uh, this is the sort of thing of this disconnect in America that I think the Supreme Court will ultimately take when they get a case on the final judgment. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is if you look at this term, meaning this current term, Stephen, that started in October of 2023 and which will end in June of 2023. 24, you will see there's a series of cases that have been taken with no circuit split. I think the most interesting one is the January 6th case where the Department of Justice 
has not only gone after these January 6th protesters slash trespassers, whatever you want to call them, and try to convert a lot of these into felonies by using a statute that deals with witness tampering and document destruction that arose out of the Enron financial crisis. And this has been novelly applied by the Department of Justice, not just to the January 6th protesters, but also half of the indictments, meaning half of the counts of the indictments against President Trump himself have been based on this law that is up until now has always been understood to be simply you can't destroy documents if you're under subpoena, you can't tamper with witnesses and threaten them before a court case, things like this, basic common sense stuff. And somehow Jack Smith, the special prosecutor, as well as the Department of Justice have tried to take this law and apply it to all these protesters and President Trump involving January 6th. But the Supreme Court, despite the fact there's no circuit split on the question, has just granted cert in that case. And that's another kind of example where the court will take cases where there's no circuit split if it's particularly important. And I think an AR-15 ban case is going to be viewed as very important. And I do think there's there's really certainly five and likely six votes in our favor. Um, I think Roberts might be an issue with granting cert. But once the case is up there, I don't think there'll be any problem whatsoever in getting a six to three decision. The semi-automatic rifles are protected arms under the Second Amendment, no different than semi-automatic pistols are protected arms under the Second Amendment and Caetano and, of course, in Heller. Mm. And uh, speaking of Supreme Court cases where I don't believe there was a circuit split, uh, we have the NRA case uh, and not uh, the NRA First Amendment case, yes. not a Second Amendment case. So maybe a little bit out of uh, what we normally talk about, but it does involve the NRA and its advocacy for gun rights. So uh, I definitely think it's one of the stories that's worth following. And uh, one of the particularly interesting twists in this in this story is that the DOJ uh, filed a brief that was not in support of either side, I guess, technically, but ultimately uh, came down on the idea that the gun rights groups, First Amendment rights were violated by this New York uh, financial official. Yeah, the Supreme Court looks to be almost certainly willing and going to rule in favor of the NRA and vindicate their First Amendment rights against the state of New York. The fact that the United States Department of Justice run by Joe Biden and Merrick Garland is coming out effectively well, they're, they're, they may not say they're in support of the NRA, but the fact that they're not in support of New York basically means they're in support of the NRA. And the right. fact that the ACLU has announced their support, at least the national office, I believe, has mm -hmm. announced their support and is going to argue the case in yeah. favor of the NRA and for the NRA. I think that tells you where this is going to go. Yeah. Strange, now, A lot of strange bedfellows, but, but it I is, think it but gives you, you know, good it's very insight. Important. Yeah, the First Amendment still remains important. And I think that the critical thing to understand about this case, Stephen, is, you know, the New York says that we, the government, have the right to exercise First Amendment rights and speak out on issues. And that's true. It is there's no doubt that the government has the legal authority to speak out on issues no different than any other American entity or American. They can talk about whatever they want and use the power of persuasion to say, we think this is good or we think this is bad. We think race discrimination is bad with whatever. They can say these things and that's allowed. What's not allowed, and that's what's alleged here in the NRA case before the Supreme Court, is that the state of New York did not just argue what they like or what they think is good policy. They took it to the next level. And according to the allegations, certain officials in the state of New York, including the head or one of the heads of the financial regulators of New York, basically was suggesting to NRA's business partners, financial partners, that maybe they need to stop doing business with 
with the NRA, because if they don't stop doing business with the NRA, there may be some possible regulatory repercussions that they may not like in their other lines of business. And the, uh, the allegations, and these are all just allegations, we don't know if they're true or not, but the allegations in the NRA complaint is that a lot of their business partners and financial partners said, well, we can't we can't do business with you, NRA, anymore because, you know, we, we feel threatened by what the state of New York is saying. Keep in mind that whether you like it or not, Wall Street and New York to this very day is the financial capital of the world. If you are a business, if you're a bank, if you're a financial house, if you're an insurance company, you really have to touch fingers with New York State because that is where massive amounts of wealth transfers through to the banks, the financial institutions, and so on. So if the lead financial regulator in the state of New York is hinting that maybe they're not going to be happy with you and maybe they're going to impose additional regulatory requirements or audits or other uh, bad things to you and your big business, well, you can see why that might, might cause um, people to say, well, you know, I don't really need this headache. Uh, the NRA is not that big of a client. We can just drop them and we got other we can make money with all sorts of other ways so you could at least understand how this could play out as to whether or not that's what happened only time will tell but i think the supreme court is going to say that the state of new york is not allowed to threaten people uh, because of viewpoint discrimination and i think it's going to be pretty obvious that new york state given how they behaved after Bruin and how they behaved uh, for the last 10 or 15 years when it comes to the right of the people to keep in their arms. Um, I mean, they call the NRA every name in the book. So I think showing a motive is not going to be very difficult for the NRA in this case. The question is, you know, what happened in those alleged conversations between New York state regulators and those uh, business and financial partners? And of course, that's always a question of fact. And that's really what the NRA is arguing. They're saying, look, we haven't even had a chance to prove our case. We've made allegations. If the allegations are true, we're going to win this case under the First Amendment. We want the opportunity to prove our case. And the court dismissed our case, so we never had that opportunity. And I think the Supreme Court's going to give them that opportunity and send this case back and say, you know, carry on with the law with the lawsuit. Yeah. I mean, honestly, their allegations are maybe even a little bit more direct uh, than, than that, because they it was uh, the insurers that they were working with at the time it was Lloyd's London and locked in. And they claim that that uh, Maria Vullo, who was the financial regulator at the center of this case, that she just literally told them they were going to they would face uh, financial um, inquiries uh, or, or punishment for some infractions that they had made unrelated to the NRA unless they dropped the NRA. And specifically because she didn't like the NRA's political point of view. Uh, now, that, those were in meetings that were private. And then on top of that, she'd sent letters to these companies that uh on the one hand spell out like yo you shouldn't do business with them because they they're a gun promotion organization and other companies are dropping them in the wake of parkland shooting and 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 some of this stuff and then at the end it talks about how you know dropping the NRA as an example of good governance which is obviously an issue under uh New York law because that's part of what she regulates whether these companies are are uh, you know carrying out their fiduciary responsibilities, and so uh, it was interesting though to see the DOJ making a bit of a distinction, especially in that letter. They they wanted to focus on the meetings and the allegations that she just directly threatened these companies, um, but they said that most of the letter was okay because it's just her trying to persuade based and that government officials can make their case uh, uh, and they can argue for 
you know, a company to operate a certain way or, or not, but what they can't do is make an explicit threat. And the, they kind of got a little bit more vague about whether the, the, the letter constituted threats. They just wanted the court to focus on the meetings. Um, and, you know, I'm interested in your thoughts on DOJ's motivation here. Like why get involved? Uh, you know, they, you know, they gave a couple of reasons, right? They said, uh, you know, it's first amendment case. And so the government is, has an interest in all of these sorts of cases because it governs, you know, how, how we operate. And then they also referred to, uh, specific cases. I think there was a social media case that's ongoing where the DOJ has a position that it, uh, government officials can kind of say, can like offer advice to private companies on how to operate. Uh, and that's complies with the first amendment. And they're they're so they're trying to perhaps use this case as a contrast where they're saying, look, you, we weren't doing this. This is obviously bad, but what we what we did here is fine. Is that kind of how you see this? Yeah, I, I think the Department of Justice under Joe Biden and Merrick Garland have, have filed this amicus brief in the uh, NRA case for a couple of reasons. And the first one is it's a relatively straightforward case that. We pretty much know how this is going to come out. The Supreme Court's going to rule for the NRA and send this case back for further fact-finding. So really, um, it's not going to impact who's going to win this case. Okay, I think if it was a line call, you know, I could see DOJ looking to go against the NRA politically. But I think because it's pretty clear how this is going to be ruled on by the Supreme Court, this is like the DOJ can put in put in a document that's really a form of virtue signaling. They can say, see, you know, we are bipartisan. We just follow where the rule of law takes us. You know, yeah, we do all this terrible stuff to the gun owners, just terrible stuff to the NRA. You know, we search gun, you know, we do gun transactions, uh, you know, research um, that we may not be allowed to do. We do all sorts of terrible things to gun owners all across America. And we take all the positions against gun owners in the Supreme Court and the Rahimi case and so on and so on and so on. But we're really just being even handed uh, members of the judiciary and members of the I should say members of uh, DOJ. And here's an example where we actually basically did not go against the NRA in this case. But of course, the reality is uh their involvement has no meaningful outcome. So really, I think this this document from the Department of Justice is mostly virtue signaling. It is a PR ploy so they can say down the road, look, we're fair and honest brokers. We'll uh, see, see, we came out, we didn't uh, go after the NRA. We came out kind of in in favor of them. That's number one. The second thing is they do want to try to remind the Supreme Court and encourage uh, the court to try to issue a narrow ruling to say, well, on these facts as alleged, in these unique set of facts as alleged by the NRA, this can give rise to a cause of action. So let them engage in discovery and just keep the ruling narrowly confined and don't issue any broad proclamations or anything like that that could be used against other blue states that are going after the NRA or trying to do bad things to gun owners or, you know, talking out against, uh, because if you look at the Biden administration, it seems to me their entire campaign for 2024, and I'm not like a political strategist here, it's just a sense I'm getting from reading the papers, you know, it's all about, you know, we want to stop MAGA extremists, we want to stop, you know, uh, white extremists, we want to stop gun owners, right, you know, all, you know, white, what, what, I don't know what they're calling now, what, what, what is the most recent phrase, uh, domestic terrorists, domestic extremists, I've lost track of all these sort of propaganda terms, the Biden administration, so, so it's pretty clear that a big part of the campaign of the Biden administration is to say that anyone that supports Donald Trump, anyone 
that supports the Republican Party, anyone that supports conservatism or the rule of law or the Constitution is somehow very, very bad. And they're going to engage in ad hominem attacks against these people. So it's I'm guessing DOJ also is cognizant of this fact and wants to be clear that the government can say anything nasty they want about their opponents politically. They just can't in the circumstance threaten people uh, from doing business with those same people. And I think they're walking that fine line. And that's how what I get out of that DOJ brief. Okay. All right. Well, uh, we really appreciate you taking some time to go over a couple of these different legal issues with us. Um, if people want to find out more about your, your writing, they want to follow you, uh, where can they do that? Sure. Well, I think the most popular way is to follow me on YouTube on my uh, channel, uh, The Four Boxes Diner. So check me out on The Four Boxes Diner YouTube channel. We now, I think, have about 28 million views over the last couple of years. So we're, we're growing 140,000, some odd thousand, 140,000 subscribers or approximately. And, uh, you know, so we're trying to get those numbers up. And of course, they can follow me on X at Four Boxes Diner. So uh, where I try to get a few Second Amendment comments out every day and try to educate the movement. And uh, that's what I try to do because, you know, our rights under the Second Amendment are so intertwined, rightly or wrongly. I don't like it, but it's the reality on the ground. It's so intertwined with these crazy court cases and what the judges decide and where these lawsuits are filed that I thought it was helpful to have someone that really understands the inside baseball of how courts work, how the Supreme Court works, how litigation works to try to explain what all this means. Because, you know, we want people to focus on what really matters and not get caught up in the noise. And sometimes there's noise out there that, yeah, we should be aware of it, but we shouldn't spend a lot of resources the time on it because it's not going to matter. And I'm trying to help uh, separate the wheat from the chaff, if you will, uh, when it comes to our rights in the courts. And that's what I try to do on the Four Boxes Diner channel on YouTube. All right, great. Well, people should head over there and check you out if they haven't already. Uh, I think you produce some of the best uh, pro Second Amendment analysis uh, on, on the platform, frankly. So I appreciate you coming on. And we'll have to have you on again in the future. Thanks, Stephen. Always a pleasure. All right. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined as always by Reload founder Stephen Gutowski. How are we doing this week, Steve? I'm doing pretty good. How about you? Doing pretty good. Can't complain. We just had a little bit of an Arctic cold front that moved through Colorado and it's finally moved out of town so I can actually be in a t-shirt again and not <laughs> feel like I'm freezing. <laughs> yeah, it's snowing here in Virginia, so. Uh, but I like that. I like snow, so. Yeah. What can you do? Uh, what, what do we got for news this week? Sure. So to get things started in the newsletter, uh, one of the links we have is an interesting survey out of my home state of Colorado. Uh, we have one of those state level office of gun violence prevention, uh, situations, one of a handful of states to have one. And they just sponsored some research, uh, to conduct a survey of gun ownership and what they found kind of mirrors national trends that about half of Colorado adults live in a home with a gun. And another interesting data point that they found was about 8% report carrying a, a gun daily going about their daily lives. So some interesting findings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, that's certainly in line with what we've seen from national surveys. There was that NBC poll uh, a little while back that found was 52% of voters uh, report having a gun in the home. So this is in line with that, certainly. But, you know, that's it's a pretty significant number, right? I mean, that's half the population. Um, it's pretty interesting too, given Colorado's move towards uh, more restrictive gun laws over the past decade or so that even, even with that, you still have a lot of people there who own firearms. Yeah. That is a fascinating dynamic because it is one of mm -hmm. the gun control movements, success dates for sure. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. The, and one of the other links we got comes to us from Axios, and it's just sort of covering the Washington uh, legislative session. Speaking of another state where gun control has had a lot of success in recent years, um, they're back at it again. There's five gun control bills that have been introduced. And this piece particularly highlights uh, two big ones that are probably going to pass. Those include uh, permit to purchase requirements for all gun sales um, and then a sensitive places type bill, one that I wrote about in a member's piece last week uh, that would essentially ban licensed carry in transit stations, parks, playgrounds, that sort of thing. Um, so interesting to see that Washington is continuing with the momentum to push for gun control. Yeah, these sort of democratic mountain states have uh, moved moved away from gun rights in recent years, which is a fascinating trend. And I don't, you know, I don't, it'd be really interesting to see if that backfires at some point. It doesn't seem like it has so far. I guess Colorado has shied away from the strictest provisions like Ms. Holman's ban. Um, but yeah, on other, all other fronts, they've pushed forward and Democrats still control everything there, and they they just uh, had success in the last election as well. So, pretty pretty interesting trends for sure. Yeah, I think it's likely we'll see it continue until, like you said, electoral fortunes change. Um, and obviously, they're going to have a lot of lawsuits over over these yeah, oh, various yeah. restrictions, uh, especially in in Washington, like the ones you just described. In a broom response bill in a place that Bruin didn't affect directly is pretty wild. Yeah, certainly. That's that's basically why I wrote my members piece last week, because mm -hmm. it is unique to yeah. see Colorado because Colorado is considering one as well. Yeah, um, good piece. Uh, and then the last one we're going to talk about from the newsletter comes to us from the AP, and it's just covering the DOJ's report that was just issued uh, yesterday. We're recording this on Friday, so Thursday, uh, about the police response to the Uvalde shootings. Um, basically, it confirms what we kind of have talked about on the show here and in writing at the Reload basically it was just an inexcusable response by the folks waiting outside that classroom for 45 minutes while shots were still being fired. Um, and the DOJ pretty much says as much. Yeah, we had, we had a whole episode on, on Uvalde with, uh, Mike Wilbur from active self-protection. Who's, uh, who used to do active shooter training and has responded to an active shooter incident as well. And, uh, you know, I've done active shooter training a couple of times and, just everything that happened at Uvalde was the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do in the situation. And, and it does sound like it led to more harm, much, much more harm. I mean, I think he was left alone in that classroom for over an hour and he fired off dozens of shots in that time uh, with people bleeding out in, in the room. It's just the circumstances are insane how that happened. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the report is extremely damning for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully, uh, no other agencies make those same mistakes in the future. If God forbid this ever happens again. So, um, and then moving into some of the stories we wrote about this week, uh, one of them I, I wrote up about uh, San Jose, the largest city in Silicon Valley in California and what they're charging for concealed carry permits. Uh, a look at their website shows that just the initial application fee is uh, just under $1,300, and that doesn't include a whole host of other required fees to get a permit. Uh, so a rough estimate, someone looking to get their concealed carry permit through San Jose Police Department is probably looking at, I don't know, $1,700, $1,800, depending on the cost of training, which is 
by far the most expensive we've seen thus far. Yeah, plus the time costs, right, that go into that whole process. You know, it's uh, I just went through the DC process as we we've, we've talked about before on the show, and you know, if you don't have the means to pay for all those fees or to take time off from from work to go and do the various steps of the application process, then yeah, you're just denied your your right to carry. And I, you know, frankly, that's what the process appears designed to do. Like the. I don't think anyone in San Jose is shy about the fact that they don't want people to have to carry guns or even to have them at all. I mean, they have the San Jose is the the city with the uh, requirement that people buy special gun owning insurance that doesn't exist. Um, so their 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 goals with this are fairly obvious, uh, as as is often the case with these sorts of onerous uh, restrictions. But yeah, I mean. <clears throat> There's already kind of a test case on this. I know yep. you talked to uh, to the CRPA, California Rifle Pistol Association um, lawyer. You talked to um, uh, Costas Morris about this, who's been on the show before, and they have a case going already in Laverne, right? And so they're kind yep. of already testing this, the limits of what you can charge for for a permit. Um, and I guess whatever happens in that case might affect what San Jose is doing. Although I, the police department did eventually respond to you on this piece, right? What did, what did they say? Yeah, that's right. I reached out and basically asked, you know, what goes in, why, why does yours cost $1,290? What, what goes into that fee? Uh, why does it, why is it so much different than some of the surrounding agencies? Uh, and basically the way they explained to me is it's all very sterile, like, Oh, this is simply the results of our time task analysis model is what they called it. And essentially what, what that means is they have employees that handle these applications, report how long it takes them to process and, and get through the applications, plus whatever the salary is of those employees. And I guess they multiply those together and whatever that spits out is the fee that they say they charge. But what I thought was interesting is because one other thing that's notable about San Jose's permits is that they only issue them for one year when California state law uh, specifies two years for permits and most other agencies also issue them for two years. Uh, so they told me, that, in addition to their permit, they're actually currently reviewing surrounding agencies to see if they need to adjust their policies to better correspond with other agencies. Uh, and basically just said, we're, we're in talks with the city attorney's office to figure out if, if we're out of step. Uh, and I don't think you really need to talk to a lawyer to figure that out, but <laughs> yeah. what do I know? <clears throat> well, you know, it's it's interesting to see them say that. And um, I don't know, fall back on the excuse that essentially they this is the first time they've had to do this because they didn't ever issue permits before that's right that's uh, right right so uh yeah we'll, we'll keep on top of that though for sure and then have to see where where they end up with all this because it is pretty remarkable to see them try to charge people that much money essentially pricing people out of being able to ex exercise one of their constitutional rights according to the supreme court so yeah, yeah. Certainly. what else in the supreme have? court the Supreme Court specifically warned against that. Um, yes, that's true. Right. Uh, so another piece that we have comes to us from you, and it's on the National Rifle Association and sort of the ongoing drama between board members that are unhappy with the direction of the organization as it's obviously going through its corruption trial. Uh, you actually obtained a letter from an NRA board member essentially saying as much, uh, publicly calling out the direction of the organization and trying to encourage them to get back on track. Uh, if you want to tell us what your reporting found. 
Yeah, Owen Buzz Mills, who's been a board member for quite a while at the NRA. Um, he's also the the owner of or yeah the owner of Gunsight Academy, which is a a, a very well known uh, firearms training facility out in Arizona. Um, so he's a, he's a pretty prominent member of the board, uh, <clears throat> at least within the firearms community generally. And he you know, he's been somebody who has been open to these sort of reform efforts in the past. He, I think he resigned at one point over concerns of, with the, um, the insurance, the board's insurance policy was, was, uh, canceled at one point and they had to get a new one, uh, over, you know, the corruption allegations. And so, <clears throat> but he, he's on the board and, and he's apparently very upset about, What's going on with not just the trial in New York, which, by the way, has been ongoing for two weeks now. We had Rocky Marshall, who's a former board member and uh, another uh, dissident or Wayne, Wayne LaPierre critic on the show last week, talk about his testimony in that trial. But yeah, uh, Buzz seems more upset about how things are moving to replace Wayne. Uh, you know, LaPierre stepped down announced he was he's going to step down at the end of the month and um it's not really clear what's going to happen to fill the evp position executive vice president position uh, but apparently there's at least some indications from board members that i've spoken with that they're going to try to make charles cotton the current president of the nra and longtime wayne ally who was you know, chairman of the audit committee when they approved a lot of these controversial uh, expenses um, and contracts that are at issue in this court case, uh, yeah, and actually oftentimes retroactively approve them because they were not told of them beforehand. There's another common issue that's at, at play in the court, in the court case, but uh, he's currently the president because they changed the bylaws to allow him to serve a second term when he was supposed to be out. Earlier, they pushed out uh, somebody else named Willis Lee, who was in line to be president. Um, you know, they've done a lot of that kind of maneuvering over the last month or so at the NRA. Um, Andrew Rulanundum, who was the spokesperson for a long time, for decades, I think, really, um, and and longtime wing confidant, was moved from spokesperson or you know communications director to head of general operations, which is what runs like the safety and training program and, and things of that nature, the competition stuff that the NRA does uh, in the, the 501c3 arm, nonprofit arm of the NRA. Uh, and they pushed out uh, to Burgalus is the, the guy's name um, to do that. And not coincidentally, I think that role is the person who's in line to become interim executive vice president. And so they did this right before Wayne announced he was resigning. So they, you know, essentially uh, one of LaPierre's closest confidants is going to be the interim executive vice president. And it looks like there's some effort at least to make another one of his closest confidants the a more permanent uh, solution at that position with Charles Cotton. And that's what Buzz Mills is is upset about. He doesn't like Charles Cotton. 
um, and the things that he's done uh, when he was on the audit committee and so forth. And um, so he sent a, a letter to the board trying to scuttle this whole plan, essentially. And yeah, it's certainly breaking the internal drama back out into the public view once again uh, as the NRA goes through this this corruption trial. Yeah, it's sort of a, a continuation of, of sort of similar actually to what Rocky Marshall, who we had on the show last week, was saying about now's the time, you know, everything's busting out wide in the open. These allegations have been around for a while, obviously, but now that it's on trial, you know, other people have a chance to try to get this organization, people that care about the organization have a chance to try to get it back on track. And yet they're seeing all this maneuvering that you're describing here. And uh, what's looking like a concerted effort to kind of keep more of the same types of people in control of the organization. Um, so I, I, I don't think these fights are going to go away anytime soon if that if that is the case between the camp of people that want to see the NRA truly reformed and the camp that wants to, you know, get past the bad allegations of wrongdoing and, and keep longtime folks in control of the organization. Yeah, I mean, there's there was the NRA had some good news this week that we discussed with Mark on the DOJ sort of coming to their support, at least a bit in the First Amendment case. But they, they had a lot of bad news as well this week. And this was this was a big part of it. Um, you know, the buzz also brought up this accusation that Wayne was given a bonus to cover the money that he was required to pay back to the NRA um, for, you know, quote unquote, excess benefits. For people who don't know, Wayne <clears throat> has actually admitted to some wrongdoing here. Uh, the NRA generally, as part of their case, has admitted to some wrongdoing. Um, but they claim to have corrected themselves <clears throat> internally, excuse me, <clears throat> every time, every time you do the podcast. <laughs> because <clears throat> uh, comes through uh, anyway they've admitted to some wrongdoing but they their claim is that they've reformed themselves and part of that is that wayne had to pay back some uh money it's about a million dollars at this point but initially it was it was a couple hundred thousand dollars back in 2019 and the buzz mills claimed that there was <clears throat> a an effort to give him a bonus uh, that was apparent. Uh, he claims Charles Cotton was in charge of this and uh, that the bonus would cover the amount that he had to pay back to the NRA. And um, so, you know, the NRA denied this to be clear in, in a quote to us uh, and said that, you know, Wayne's compensation is part of the public record. And if you do go back and look at those 990s, and this is in the piece, people can read it and look at the 990s themselves, of course. Uh, Wayne LaPierre did receive a pretty substantial increase in his compensation between 2017 and 2018, which was the year right before he made those payments back to the NRA. And then his salary has slowly, or his compensation, his total compensation has decreased over time since then. So, um, you know, that's, that's, I guess the, the bump in pay that is that issue here, whether or not that was related to, um, you know, an effort to cover the costs that he would have to repay the NRA is, uh, we don't have any proof of that, uh, to be very clear. This is just a claim that is in this letter. But uh, certainly the, the money that Wayne received from the NRA during that time period did increase rather substantially. It was about $800,000 uh, worth of increased total compensation between those two years. So that, that was another 
accusation that's been floating around for a while, but uh, that Mills put is part of this letter uh, in his effort to keep Cotton from becoming executive vice president and instead to advocate for a more formal search for a new executive vice president that would involve the entire board. Um, so, uh, you know, because the one of the board members that I spoke with said they're they're concerned that the NRA that Co Charles Cotton in particular is going to call a virtual board meeting, perhaps as soon as next week to um, have Cotton made EVP for a at least for a period of time for a couple of years. There was some comment to this effect during the, the previous board meeting uh, earlier this month. And, uh, you know, the, the next official board meeting isn't until I believe it's May, whenever the annual meeting is. So um, we'll have to see what happens. That's at least some of the concerns uh, out there. And, and there's a lot of drama over this whole thing right now. But uh, people should head over and read the full letter and read the NRA's response to it uh, for themselves, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the final story we want to talk about today is actually a member's piece that you wrote, uh, kind of breaking down some of the presidential primary, Republican presidential primary dynamics and how they do, or in this case, do not intersect with gun politics. Because as you point out, uh, gun policy has been fairly absent thus far in the race. If you want to talk about yeah. what you wrote. Yeah, it's been pretty remarkable, honestly, a bit inexplicable, I think, to a certain degree. You know, obviously, Donald Trump won. The Iowa primaries, he got over 50%. Um, he was uh, well ahead of the of Ron DeSantis, who came in second, and then Nikki Haley in third. Um, uh, you know, there's plenty of discussion anyone can have about what those results mean for the larger primary, certainly. Uh, I think if there isn't some movement soon here, if Trump wins the New Hampshire primary, it's probably going to be even harder to imagine him losing overall. But, uh, you know, if he loses New Hampshire, that might change things. Uh, we'll leave the sort of uh, <laughs> electoral prognostications to other people on that front. But what's interesting to me is when you think about this race, um, now we've had our first actual caucus. I guess not a primary, but uh, the first time where people have cast votes. The only remark, the only thing on gun policy you can say about it is that it had no effect at all, that it hasn't been an issue whatsoever in this Republican primary, which is pretty bizarre if you consider uh, Donald Trump's record on, on the, the topic. Uh, certainly, uh, he has his strengths, right? Uh, you know, and I, I name them all, or at least a number of them in his in the piece, you know, there was he signed legislation to roll back uh, an Obama era Social Security gun related regulation. Um, he uh, added gun businesses to the essential businesses list during the pandemic, which allowed, you know, uh, in, in some states, at least they followed through and, and let them open back up. Although obviously there's a lot of continued fighting over that in the courts. Um, but and then, of course, I think his biggest um, accomplishment is going to be obviously appointing three of the Supreme Court justices who were in the majority of Bruin. Um, so, you know, he has things he can point to, certainly. And, and 
uh, rhetorically, he's he's been um, also done things like given the the keynote speak. Sorry, he's done things like given the keynote speech at every NRA annual meeting since he's been president. He was the first sitting president to speak to the NRA since Ronald Reagan. So, you know, he, he's he's uh, certainly got a, a record on that front, but he also has a lot of vulnerabilities on the issue from the right, at least, uh, which you think would come up in a Republican primary. I mean, he uh, he had a, a big bipartisan meeting at the White House after Parkland, where he uh, expressed interest in working with Democrats like Dianne Feinstein to uh, enact new gun restrictions, uh, including, in particular, a red flag bill, where he sort of infamously, in gun circles at least, said that he would prefer to take the guns first and have due process second, go to court second. Um, And he, you know, criticized the NRA during that period as well. Um, and he didn't follow through on that, of course. So the, uh, but mostly because the impeachment happened, the first impeachment happened and that kind of ruined any opportunity for him to work together with Democrats on, on really anything at that point. But, um, of course he did enact actual gun restrictions unilaterally after the Las Vegas shooting. He, um, he did the bump stock ban, right, which has since been found unconstitutional by uh, in, in federal court and is now going to be at the Supreme Court relatively soon here. They've accepted that case as well. Uh, so, you know, there, there's a lot of vulnerabilities there, you would think, <laughs> from in a Republican primary where, uh, especially with somebody like Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who has kind of, it seemed, was taking steps to differentiate himself on the issue that he he signed permitless constitution he signed permitless concealed carry he uh signed those bank regulations that bar banks from dropping guns gun businesses over you know the fact that they they work with firearms and um there just hasn't been much attention given to this by any of the candidates um you know desantis made some comments he he called the uh, Trump, Trump's endorsement or pseudo endorsement of red flag laws uh, unconstitutional, and or at least the concept unconstitutional. And he, his super PAC, produced an ad that called Trump a, a, a gun grabber and was pretty harsh. But it also, they never did anything with it, as far as I can tell. Right? Um, they tweeted it a couple times, but I don't, I don't believe they spent any money with it. Um, and then Nikki Haley hasn't brought it up at all either. You know, when they've been asked in the debates, nobody has, has brought this question, the, any critique up of Donald Trump on this policy. Now, you know, they've been pretty hesitant to critique him on lots of stuff, but uh, they have gone after him on some policies, especially Ron DeSantis, but not as much on this one. And I don't, I don't really know why, honestly, I don't, I don't it's a very strange thing to me, <laughs> but uh yeah, it, and it doesn't seem like anything's going to change. There has been, uh, there was a former NRA lobbyist who operates a, a very small gun rights group uh, called the Independent Firearm Owners Association that endorsed Haley ahead of Iowa as, as almost more of a anti-Trump uh, move based on this record and then also some of these comments that he's made in recent 
weeks about where he's described his political opponents as vermin or or said that he wanted to be he wanted to be a dictator but just for day one to close the border and um and drill for more oil i guess is what he said to, to sean hannity um yeah the comments like that were part of the reasoning for uh for feldman endorsing richard feldman as the the head of this group and he that you know he endorsed haley mainly because of those issues not and haley hasn't used that endorsement in any way as far as i can tell uh, so I don't know. The race seems like it could be over relatively soon and nobody really tried to go after him on this issue. And uh, it's just a very strange set of circumstances, in my view, at least. Yeah, it is almost you know, inexplicable, not only because of the potential vulnerabilities that you point out, but just because it's a Republican primary and guns have yeah. loomed pretty, pretty large over the last couple of years, not just Ron DeSantis with his policy achievements, but like Right. The Supreme Court's Bruin decision and all the legal wins that the gun rights movement has racked up. It seems like a and Republican Trump is, primary. Trump's doubled down on his support for the bump stock ban. That, of the things he's done during the primary, there was a CNN town hall in May where he he said that they were uh, not important, right? And that, that the NRA told him to do it, so he did it. Uh, right. You know, he and no one has really gone after him on that point outside of, you know, passing I think yeah, DeSantis had to be asked specifically about this by Dana Lash to get any sort of comment on it. And he didn't even say Trump's name during this comment. So right. it's right. it's just really odd because he does have vulnerabilities on the right on this issue. Um, he even uh, there's even a story that he considered an assault weapons ban after the El Paso or uh, sorry, the uh, the Walmart shooting. And it is. Yeah, well, yep. El Paso, yeah, El Paso, yeah. Uh, so, and he's he's publicly supported Solvin's bans in the past in his book. You know, this, that was a long time ago. It was in two, his book in, from two thousand. But and and like I said earlier, he has defenses. He has things he can raise as uh, counters to these points. But he hasn't even had to do that because nobody's trying. <laughs> and that's what finds that's what's so weird to me about it. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things in this primary that have been pretty strange to me, but. But yeah. uh, this is certainly one of them. I mean, these they've seen. There's been some willingness to at least uh, go after the front runner who's way ahead, um, at least in national polls on some policy issues, but um, you know, not not on others. And obviously, they've completely avoided going after him on character issues or or on uh, all of the much more controversial aspects of Donald Trump, like January sixth or the prosecutions or the claims that the election was all this stuff, they have more or less uh, almost uh, either explicitly or tacitly endorsed a lot of that stuff, which makes their whole candidacy kind of the logic for it a bit hard to find. But sure. Um, but at least they've been going after him on some policy things, except for this one. And I don't really understand why, especially since, you know, maybe Haley's not as much of a uh, gun rights uh, crusader as DeSantis has been, but yeah, it's just this, this issue seems like it's not going to come up at all before this race is over. Maybe, I don't know, I guess we'll have to see what happens in New Hampshire here, but, um, and you know, DeSantis is also still in the race, even though he's not competing much in, in New Hampshire. So maybe there'll be some effort after that point, but I don't know. I, I just don't get it. It's a very strange yeah. thing to, to watch. It is strange. It's tough to 
tough to say what, what will happen for sure, but uh, members should go ahead and go take a look at that piece to see the, yep, your full yep. thoughts on the situation. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, I think that's all we've got for news. Uh, you I heard you're headed back to the stock show this week, though. That's right. Yeah. So listeners to last week's podcast may, maybe heard me talk about going to the National Western Stock Show here in Denver. It's the this weekend as we're recording is the last weekend that it's in town. Uh, so I'm going to go see their their rodeo finals event. Uh, in particular, I love watching bronc riding. So I'm mm. excited to see the bronc riders this weekend. Um, Have you ever done just, it? You ever done that? I've never done. No, I've never done yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't it think my health insurance is good dangerous. enough to. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> But it is cool to watch. I'll, I'll uh, admire okay. from a distance, from a safe distance where I'm not going to catch a hoof to the ribs or something like that. But um, so, yeah, I'm excited to go go check out the rodeo this weekend. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd like to get a rodeo. I've never been to any rodeo. You know, I've been to the I've been to the outdoor show up in Pennsylvania, but uh, but not the farm show. I guess that's probably closer to the stock show than than the outdoor show is. But yeah, I don't know. It sounds fun. It sounds like a good time. Good, good American experience. Yeah, it's big Western thing. Out, mm -hmm. All the states out west have big rodeos, so mm -hmm. it's, it's a good time. I'll be going to Shot Show, which is oh yeah, not quite the same thing, but uh, <laughs> but should be should be a good time. I'll be out there from uh, this year. I'm doing Tuesday through Thursday, so uh, if anyone's if anyone's out there. Let me know. Maybe we'd be able to to say hi in the giant convention center in Las Vegas. Uh, I'm not doing range day this year, which is unfortunate. It just was uh, didn't line up with my schedule to be out there on Monday, and so I'm just doing the the regular show, the floor where you can touch the guns when you can't shoot them, which is just no fair. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> it's cool. You know, range day has gotten a little weird over the years to me because. All these companies, all the bigger companies keep having their own range days. And it's like, a, I feel bad for the guys who do reviews for a living because I don't know how you're supposed to go to all these different range days. It's, they've got the main one and then there's like SIG as their own and a bunch of them have their own. And I don't know how you're supposed to make it to all of them. You, you just have to pick and choose. But oh, well, they also range day used to be more fun. I think before ammo started getting expensive because the, everybody would have they want to attract people into their booths to, so they could, you know, to sell, show you whatever they're trying to sell. And so they, a lot of them would have exotic machine guns and let you shoot 30 rounds or whatever through them. And uh, that stopped pretty fast <laughs> once the pandemic hit and ammo prices shot through the roof, but um, it's still a good time and, and certainly a good way to get a feel for what, what's going on in the market. But, you can still get that by just being on the floor. So that's where I'll be this year. Um, yeah. So if you guys are out there in Las Vegas, Nick, let me know. Uh, I guess this will go public on Monday. So uh, I'll be out there on Tuesday. Um, and yeah, looking forward to it. Uh, get some, well, I always eat the same way when I'm in Vegas, which is just either really expensive steaks from like, Bizarre Meats by Jose Andres. That's my favorite place in, in Vegas. I think it's at the uh, the SLS. And then, uh, although Emerald's Steakhouse is really good too. But uh, so, we're, you know, super high-end steaks or In-N-Out is the other thing. <laughs> Those are the two. <laughs> so looking forward to that. I'm staying off the strip this time too because the strip was, I, I don't know. I'm kind of expecting Shot Show to be really uh, packed this year. 
because I've never had trouble actually booking a hotel on the strip before, but this time there weren't any like Caesars, all of their hotels were sold out for at least one of the days of the trip. So um, I'm guessing that it's super, it's going to be super crowded, but we'll see. Wow. We'll see. And hopefully I'll see some of you guys out there, but that's all we've got for this week. Uh, if you like what we do here at the reload, you should head on over to thereload.com and sign up for our free newsletter. We give you one email a week. We don't spam your inbox and it keeps you up to date with what's going on with guns in America. Of course, you can also buy a membership if you want to get even more information. You want to dig a little bit deeper into the topic and stay as informed as possible. You'll get access to hundreds of pieces of news and analysis you won't find anywhere else. And of course, you'll get this to show a day early and you'll have the opportunity to appear on the show in a member segment, uh, which hopefully we'll have another one of those coming up relatively soon for you too. But yeah, head over to the reload.com, check out those options today. Uh, if you're not ready to make a, a purchase, you can also help us out by liking and rating this, this show. We listen to your feedback and try to improve the show based off of it. So uh, please do that and also help us reach more people. Please share the show with anyone you think might be interested as well. But that's all we've got for you this week. And we'll see you guys again real soon.